0: Welcome to episode number one of the HPBA podcast. For this episode, we interviewed Dr. John Nicholas Votay. Dr. Vote is a professor from the Department of Surgical Oncology at MD Anderson. He's also the chief of hepatobiliary surgery at MD Anderson and the Dallas-Fort Worth Living Legend Chair of Cancer Research within the Department of Surgical Oncology at MD Anderson. Dr. Vote earned his medical d- degree in Lausanne, Switzerland. He began his postgraduate training with a year of internal medicine followed by a year of surgical pathology. His surgical training began with two years of training in Switzerland, followed by five additional years at the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans, Louisiana. He did two fellowships, the first fellowship in the Department of GI and Transplant Surgery in Bern, Switzerland, followed by a two-year surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Dr. Vote is a prolific researcher with over 560 peer-reviewed manuscripts. Dr. Voté has been an incredible mentor to the two of us, so we are very excited to do this interview, and we're excited to present it as our first episode. Dr. Voté has a wealth of knowledge, and we focus on his main area of expertise surrounding the treatment of colorectal liver metastases. Our conversation ranged from Dr. Voté's early career and how he found his niche of liver surgery as well as colorectal liver metastases. We then discussed some finer points of the care of these patients with colorectal liver mets. We really hope you enjoy it, and without further ado, here's episode one.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the HPBA podcast. It's Tim and Tim here, and we're here with a very special guest today, one who needs no introduction, Dr. Jean-Nicolas Voté, the chief of HPB surgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, one of the more formative mentors for Tim and I and a very inspiring character for us.
0: So, again, thank you for your time, Dr. Votay. It's obviously a big honor for the two of us to interview you. So the first thing we wanted to start, given this is kind of the master's series, this is going to be mainly people like you who have been through it, and kind of we want to know how you got here. Tell us uh, a little bit of your story, uh, how you started out. You know, give us some perspective of those of us who are, Junior and just out of training, and everything seems a little overwhelming. Hopefully, you experience that at some point. That'll make us feel better about it. Uh, but we'd love to hear your story. You know how you got to be where you are at MD Anderson today.
2: If it's overwhelming for you now, <laughs> it uh, it was overwhelming back then. That's, that's good to uh, hear. Uh, <laughs> we started uh, in a pyramided program at the Ashna Clinic. You know, uh, um, started 10. 10 and um, finished four. Wow. And uh, there was no preliminary, you know, it was 10 categorical. No, so, 80 no uh, hour
0: work week either. Right. <laughs> and,
2: uh, but I loved it. Uh, in fact, uh, it was by choice. Uh, and I, I had loved it uh, as a medical student in Switzerland because uh, when we were doing our surgery months, we were um, uh, on call for 24 hours. Um, every other day for a month when we were on the surgery service so uh, uh, it was quite an experience. So I liked action and because I liked action, I thought you know um, an internship, maybe one year, or two years in the U.S. would be would be fun and would be exciting. And and I came, and and they, uh, the the Arsenal Clinic was very gracious to me. They they gave me an interview in the middle of the year, outside the match, and uh, and then uh, <clears throat> I had John Bowen, the, the the program director, at the end of the interview, and he. Um, he, he said, do you want a job? And I said, yeah, i love to have a job. Report here July 1st, and you start, and uh, you know, you'll be on the probation for one year, and we'll see how you do. So I did that, and, um, and then I was very interested in, in, in fact, vascular and cardiac, mm-hmm. because it was a cardiac and vascular place. And um, towards the end of the training, um, the Ashna Clinic did the first 10 liver transplantation for free, uh, so patients would come from around the world or around the country, denied at the Mayo Clinic, and and uh, and I got an interest in the liver. At the time, I was thinking of doing um, a fellowship uh, in uh, in vascular surgery, cardiac surgery, but uh, I got a phone call from um, from one of my mentors in Switzerland. I was in my fifth year. I remember, chief resident at the Ashna. And he said, "Well, why don't you come back home? Uh, uh, I can get you a job here, a fellowship uh, with Bloemkort, and you won't waste your time. And you'll be back in the, in the home country. It's going to be fun. Um, uh, and I thought about it, and and I realized, well, maybe you know, maybe liver uh, has more, you know, for me than than cardiac." Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out probably to be true. Uh, I just uh, jumped on this opportunity, got back to Switzerland, was with, uh, with Professor Blumgart, was a very funny guy uh, back then. And, um, <clears throat> and he, he liked me a lot, put me in charge of ICU. And, uh, but after a year and a half, I said, well, you know, there's not enough action. Switzerland is a small country, there's not as much to do, and um, I had the opportunity to go to memorial. So I did two years there, and then I landed my first job um, um, as a faculty after I finished that memorial at the University of Florida. And uh, I was there uh, with Ted Copeland, very gracious person, um, interviewed me, um, I remember, in an outdoor cafe. Was in, in, in March or April in Gainesville. And, uh, and, and, and after that, he said, I thought I would do something very European. And, <laughs> and he, he, uh, he hired me. And uh, in fact, I inherited there. The practice of Kirby Bland, who was vice chair in Gainesville, had left, but he had this big practice, yeah. and he said, "You know, you're going to inherit this practice," uh, which which was a very uh, uh, very busy practice, uh, uh, but didn't give me Dr. Bland's office. He gave me Dr. <laughs> Bland's Dr. Bland's secretary's office, <laughs> and I ended up in that small office, and um, and I. Um, I wanted to focus on GI, so I uh, I had um, a few ideas, and uh, uh, I really first thing I wanted to have a, a conference where we could present GI cancer. There was a breast colorectal cancer conference, but um, uh, not a GI cancer conference. So um, I would book a lot of cases, GI colorectal cases, on that breast colorectal, and finally. The breast surgeons requested a separate conference. <laughs> so I got a, a conference where I could, <laughs> I could present the cases. And the good news for that conference is that it was next to interventional radiology. And here, um, I was very fortunate to, um, to work with the star of uh, interventional radiology, Dick Hawkins. I don't know if you've heard about the Hawkins needle, the fish hook for breast biopsies you've seen the fellow yeah, called breast biopsy yeah. he was the it was the hawkins needle so he had invented this needle and uh, and he, he was interested in everything in in inventional radiology and he was very happy to see me coming early he was coming early in the morning 6:30 mm. everybody predicted failure because it was at 6:30 in the morning the conference <laughs> and uh, and inventional radiology was there and um, we decided to, to work together to collaborate, uh, and one of the um, uh, fruit of this collaboration was polo uh, and, uh, and I had seen, um, I had seen um, uh, PVs in Japan in some patients, and I would seen, read reports, and, uh, and um, uh, I had to decide you know how to do it, when to do it. Mm-hmm. And really what triggered my first uh, PV was uh, in fact uh, an extended right hepatectomy I had uh, done on the uh, um, you know, a, a very uh, influent person in Gainesville, uh, chair of the department in fact at the university wow. done a caudate extended right with caudate. Uh, and the patient got yellow after the surgery, and bilirubin, the patient has no complication except for a high bilirubin. Uh, the chief resident calls me post-op day five, uh, I think I was at the SSO. bilirubin suddenly jumped to six, and then it was eight, and then it oh. became 11. And then I called Bloemgart, and he said, "Oh, Nick, you know, don't worry. You know that can happen, and I can write a letter or I'll write you a letter to say this is something that can happen. Don't be disappointed." Uh, uh, and the, and the the volume of the patient, we measured this volume after the case, but it was like 250 cc's essentially, normal liver, but extensive resection, and uh, <clears throat> it turned out to be. In fact, the liver that was, by our calculation, uh, after the fact, post-op, that was about 14% wow. of the total estimated wow. liver volume. But the patient recovered, in fact. Wow. I, wow. I, I saw him at the performing arts center in Gainesville. He was very thin, and, and the jaundice, after two months, uh, um, receded. And, um, but I said, never again. This kind of stress, not for me. Yeah. So, I uh, I started the PVS, did a, a small paper on PV, published it in Surgery. Very controversial. Um, there were twenty cases, ten patients with PVs, ten patients with without PV. Measuring the volume and looking very simple, looking at um, INR, bilirubin uh, post op, the peak bilirubin, INR, and uh, and liver function tests.
0: What was that? What was the IR technology yeah. at that point? What were you using for
2: PVE? Yeah. So for PVE, essentially we used what we're using now, <laughs> um, except for the spherical microsphere. We're using. Um, um, the coils and right. we were using the uh, the old spheres which were not spherical, not the ones that go very peripherally yep. that plug really well yeah. the so the portal right. right there yeah. was co- there was some component first of, of peripheral plugging hmm. but not as peripheral right. as right. the spherical so that's what we were using. And I immediately did start also with the segment four embolization because I thought the need was really for extended hepatectomy, not so much for, um, for uh, yeah, for straight You have to remember, we didn't have the pre-op chemo. So that, well, very little pre-op chemo. Yeah. In fact, we had, we had inotican you know, in 1998, but this was even before that so so we did this pves and i realized we needed to calculate and then i started presenting my cases and there was a lot of pushback presenting at sso and what is vote doing you know is uh, <laughs> we are we're doing safe liver surgery here we're doing safe liver surgery and then there was a re- suddenly a, a a discovery of pv when the chemotherapy injury was uh, was discovered and uh, and then uh, uh, the Paul Bruce group and uh, Bismuth and Rene Adam published on it mm-hmm. and there was a big thing to do and uh, and everybody started doing it and 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 there was an epidemic in fact there has been an epidemic of of PVE overutilization of PVE mm-hmm. so uh but when i started um people were saying well vote has no reason to do it in normal liver we don't see why is you know using it unnecessary and that's why we published the volume showing that the you know the left liver can be as small as 10% of the total liver volume so you really have to measure the volumes yeah. back then the the pv was done it uh, w- w- was done in injured liver, in partially fibrotic liver in Japan, sometimes in cirrhosis. And, and basically, uh, PV was done. And uh, the Japanese would look at the CT, or the French at many centers would just look at the CT, say, OK, it has grown. But there was no real measurement. And, uh, and, and the, the Japanese started measuring and proposed forty percent future liver remnant needed for any resection. Forty percent—they uh, have changed since. Now they use thirty percent for the normal normal liver. Mm-hmm. We use twenty. Uh, so there was a, um, a discovery of PV and. Um, uh, the PV exploded, and 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 as you see now, I mean, it was we expanded it to uh, the hepatic vein occlusion yeah. recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something we did in in two or three patients in Gainesville. Wow. But these patients, yeah, these patients had advanced disease, and that's the I think that's a stumbling block for the for the. PV patients for the Alps patients is the progression, the advanced disease. By definition, these patients, um, you kind of racing against the biology, and which is usually an adverse biology because it's a big tumor, it's an extensive tumor, multiple lesions. So, um, so there is there's uh, now the the I think the paradigm has improved some because we have more tools, we have more effective chemo, we have uh, uh, for Fox theory with Bev, which uh, induces a better response and, uh, you know, other biologics. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, just a final word for, you know, some people that may not be as familiar with this, now we use KGR too. So how did you, how did you guys get to that point where it wasn't just about, the final FLR, but actually how much change
2: So, So I remember a case um, that was done um, here at this institution where we did an extended right hepatectomy because we had this cutoff of 20% and did an extended right hepatectomy. It was a two-stage surgery, a second stage, uh, with a, a future liver remnant that had, had increased from 18 to 22 percent, mm. and we said, okay, well, we above 20 percent, right. Right. Yeah. well, we're fine, and we did it. And then there were already some uh, nuclear medicine paper trying to quantify the the remnant, and I said, this can't, you know, that's that's not good. That's you know that the, these cutoffs to 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent, uh, not good. So. Um, uh, our first uh, idea was to use the degree of hypertrophy. So we said, okay, we have to have at least 5% increase. That was the first paper. And then I, and then thinking about it, I, I thought, this is not really dynamic. So I was sitting uh, uh, here in this office with one of the postdoc fellows reviewing cases, and suddenly I said, but, you know, how many weeks since the PVE? And then... I thought this was important, you know, over time. And that's, that become speed of regeneration, which is a functional, really. It's a mm-hmm. functional measurement. Yeah. So it became a functional measurement derived from volumetry. And, uh, and I still think that's the measurement that's the most useful now. Now it's being used. Now KGR, the name KGR has been... Uh, perverted in a way <laughs> because it's used in Alps. But uh, what we did with 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 our um, with KGR, we, we we used it to um, and looked at the endpoint uh, hepatic insufficiency, uh, uh, and we used it um, because it was a good endpoint predicting poor outcome. But it's if it's used in Alps procedure, it does not predict outcome. It's extremely high in Alps, yeah. but there's no data I know of that's uh, predicting outcome in Alps. And it's been used also, um, not only divided by the number of weeks, uh, you know, we have a KGR that's we define as 2% or more as safe. But if you look at other papers, recent papers on combined hepatic vein and portal vein embolization, they uh, they have um, high KGR, uh, but they uh, they divide by the number of days, or, or they use as a as a num- they don't use the um, uh, the degree of hypertrophy as a numerator, but they use um, uh, a median hypertrophy not the degree of hypertrophy. So I don't know really what this means. Yeah. So you have to be careful with that number. Right. Right.
1: So um, I find these stories so incredibly, uh, so incredibly interesting and enriching because to hear it, you start from literally a single problem and take it through an entire lifetime and career to something that everyone is applying in their practice on a daily basis. So, for someone who's seen it all and been through it all, what do you think is next for patients who may have inadequate volume um, or patients with advanced bilobar disease trying to get them to resection?
2: I think you have to, to, to control the biology better. Mm-hmm. I think it remains the major stumbling block uh, control the biology. If you don't, are uh, you going to have uh, dropouts like transplantation? It's the same thing, you know, for HCC and transplantation, you know. They look at the biology, whether or, you know, whether or not they recognize it. By using you know size and number, but you have other papers that look at uh, differentiation of the HCC, and now we're using the PET scan for for uh, predicting HCC uh, outcome. Um, I think uh, I think if you can induce a response and a stable response, not only a response, the downsizing, but a response that's durable. You have different. You have sometimes response with the best um, um, chemotherapy agents, like for Foxy and even adding Bev, that cause downsizing, but um, you wait a few weeks, three weeks, or four weeks, uh, or five at least, if you have Bev, mm-hmm. and, and the tumor regrows. Right. And uh, so we still don't have the best control of biology.
1: I mean, I think that trying to control biology has always been an Achilles heel for tumors in the liver because the, the, the first response would be to give more therapy, but unfortunately the liver can't tolerate much more therapies than ones we have. So do you think that it's a, fo- a function of better selection of patients, or do we need a whole paradigm shift for, for therapies for these diseases?
2: I don't think we. I think the. I think the paradigm is good. The paradigm now is, is you know, peri-op chemo. Right. I don't call it neoadjuvant. I call it peri-op, pre-op, and post-op. I think that's been the major advance in 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 surgical oncology in the past twenty years. Is the is the periop or pre-op treatment, uh, because uh, these diseases are are um, are rarely you know are rarely cured. Eighty percent of the patients recur. So uh, you want to surf on a disease that's controlled, and you find the same uh, the same paradigm uh, in in in. Breast cancer, liver metastasis, You know, we want a response before we operate. Um, <clears throat> we used to do Whipple uh, for adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, and and uh, and 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 uh, commiserate with the family with the patient four months, five months after surgery because we were facing recurrences, uh-huh. and uh, and so. So we've, we've shifted the, 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 the paradigm. We have this new paradigm. I don't think we need to change, but I think there's still room to improve it. Right.
1: So just to shift gears a little bit, um, but with some similarities to what we just talked about, one thing that I've noticed from you, and we talked about this kind of offline, but in my time here with you, I've really gathered how much value you place on traveling and um, picking up, um, expertise from around the world, um, and on top of that, having various mentors around the world that you can also call colleagues. Can you speak to that and, and maybe some little things that you've picked up around the world and put into your practice?
2: So I think it's very important that um, you travel, uh, not only uh, during training, but after training. And, and, and it requires some patience and it requires a specific time dedicated to that. Uh, I was very fortunate to travel with a secondary purpose as a young faculty when I was in Gainesville, my first five, six years uh, um, <clears throat> after finishing fellowship, um, because the secondary goal of the, of the trips uh, I, I, I did at the time, I did, I did three or four trips that were eye-opening, uh, the secondary goal was to uh, uh, work on the new staging for hepatocellular carcinoma. So I would go to these places with a, with a, a friend, uh, a pathology friend, Dr. Greg Lowers, who was with me at Memorial and and went to Gainesville with me. And hmm. he would review slides, and we would review charts uh, 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 in different uh, countries, in Paris, in. In Kyoto, Japan, uh, we went to Mayo Clinic. Also, would spend a week there, and be in the OR, some uh, review slides, uh, work on HCC, and um, and I remember uh, uh, changing my my uh, my technique uh, at the time, um, going from crushing clamp to Kusa because I saw the use of the. Uh, ultrasonic dissect in Kyoto, Japan, and, and also in, uh, in Paris. So that was, uh, I thought, that was eye-opening and, and, uh, and use of the Pringle, use of the Pringle always, mm-hmm. virtually always, um, even uh, in some cases in, in living-related uh, liver transplant. I saw living-related liver transplant in, in Kyoto, Japan, with uh, scrub on it. And um, and uh, scrub on the donor operation, and 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 so the meticulous approach, and also the the use of stay sutures for exposure, which which we we still use. So so I've learned these things, um, essentially um, traveling, uh, looking at what was done. Uh, Management of a practice, I learned a lot from David Nagorny at at the Mayo Clinic, a wonderful uh, example of how to manage efficiently a practice.
0: I think, you know, to feed off that, there's been all these techniques and things that you've picked up throughout your career. How do you approach that? When something new comes out, um, what's your means test? How do you make that decision? Is it just a gut feel of whether you think you should adopt it? Do you try out new things and then kind of discard the ones that don't seem to work? How do you approach that, that decision?
2: So, you have to be willing to try, but uh, I'm often reluctant to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, the saline link Uh When it came, you know, it was a floating ball, and uh, and um, <clears throat> it was, um, it was a, a terrible tool that was ba- basically burning a uh, one th- centimeter of uh, of liver, uh, a slice of one centimeter of liver, and then you would crush the the dead tissue and then uh, and work your way through and and do your parenchymal transection. So I was a floating ball, and I said to the, the the company, I'm not interested. And then they kept coming, and and then they came with a very pointed uh, tip, and I thought this was more interested, but I was not very Keen on using it immediately because uh, you know I gave it to the fellow. I said, you know, do, you know I keep the Kuza for myself, <laughs> and the fellow will use the the link linkotry. And it turned out to be a two surgeon technique yeah. with, in fact, an instrument that coagulates very well. And the fellow, the demonstration is that um, sometimes the fellow asks me. They say, why do you use this saline linkotry? <coughs> I give them the Kuza instead and uh, we try to divide the parenchyma with the uh, Cotri and the CUSA is not the same. So uh, that's a, a good demonstration. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So obviously one of, the, one of the pieces of practice for patients with colorectal liver metastases that um, has names synonymous with your entire career is um, the RAS mutation in measuring patients' biology um, and their response to therapy based <coughs> on their individual tumor biology. Can you speak to how you realized that and came to um, investigate the value of knowing patients' RAS status and
2: now beyond? So what you have to do when you when you when you do uh, <coughs> clinical research, obviously you have to move from one thing to another, and you you know you get some fatigue, and then you have to. <coughs> we moved from PV to. Chemotherapy-associated hepatic injuries. We describe steatohepatitis, uh, and then response to uh, to chemo, and then uh, then you see uh, examples of great response to chemo, and you wonder, you know, what's, you know, why do you have this great response to chemo, like the cystic response we described with uh, with the bevacizumab. Uh, <clears throat> Um, uh, and CT scan, the pa- the tumor becomes cystic, uh, <clears throat> dark, and and so we we uh, moved to the mutations um, because uh, I had the opportunity. Well, I had a um, I received the Patient Care Award uh, from MD Anderson. Um, it was like 15 years ago, 30K. And uh, you have to use it for research. It's an award, but they make you use it for research. And uh, at the time, um, there was, um, um, there were new uh, machines, uh, automated PCR machines available. One was a sequinome, and it was um, uh, evaluating 20 mutations. And I said, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we evaluate the mutations? And, uh, and there was a lot of pushback because uh, people said, well, Vote is just not, you know, doesn't understand. You know, we should look at the primary, compare the mutation in the primary to the mutation in the metastasis, and, I, and, uh, and plus Vote is using pre op chemo. So, how do, they, do these mutations gonna tell us anything about, the, about cancer? And I resisted that. I said, look, you know, basic science certainly needs to compare primary with metastasis. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to look at the metastasis. So I did uh, initially uh, uh, 50 patients. Mm-hmm. And I saw a worse survival and, uh, with mutations. I, I didn't even look at RAS at, at that time. I saw that the, the patients who had a lot of mutation, multiple mutation, were associated with the worst prognosis. So if, so, I said, if it's that's true, uh, we need to do 200, because I saw a trend, and that's what I usually do when I do research, you do 40, 50, you see a difference, and then and, you establish. And you think the project's done. You bring it to Dr. Vote and says, <laughs> he says, "Do a whole lot more. <laughs> Give me 500." Then more you patients. go back to work, <laughs> <laughs> and you see go back the next month. <laughs> and, right, and good projects are not short-term projects. Yes, Unfortunately, they are not short-term projects, and, and it's yeah, it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's you cannot be an Excel surgeon take, uh, you know, uh, an Excel sheet and, and uh, an SPSS and press the button and look at what's coming out of this. And you can't. You just have to really uh, verify, you know, your findings. You do your small experiment and then you you validate. So it's a sort of validation of what you do. So we did this, the, this, uh, we did two RAS papers, two RAS mutation papers, both uh, presented at the American surgical and, um, and, and then after that we had uh, a 50 gene panel that came out and now we have a 150 gene panel that's available so that gave us many more opportunity to develop the uh, you know the, the field and look at other mutations
0: So can you speak a little bit to the newest, latest, greatest in that and kind of where, you know, what you think the next couple of years are going to look like and then, uh, you know, maybe the future? And and I think specifically, you know, when you have these patients with a lot of mutations, we know that they do worse. Uh, You know, at some point, are we going to figure out that we need to do something different with them? Is is the answer
2: going to be immunotherapy or, you know, where do you think all this is headed? So the good news is that we know a lot more now. We know that... uh, uh, work. The work has been done by others, but the, um, there is concordance between primary and metastasis. It's concordant, more than 90%. Mm-hmm of these mutations are concordant, so we could use it on the primary. The field has expanded extraordinarily. We know that patients with multiple metastases have the same <laughs> mutations through, throughout these metastases. So it is wonderful. So the, the field is, is the, 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 the knowledge has helped us also to use it in practice. And um, uh, so we, we know that, Colorectal carcinogenesis is really dependent on uh, about um, seven pathways. Some say 10, 11, but there are seven main pathways that um, um, may be implicated. And uh, But looking at our own data, um, using the 50-gene uh, the panel on, on 600 patients, we realize now that there are, in fact, uh, uh, mainly five pathways with six driver mutations. very simple, in fact. And, and then you have... These are the most common, the most frequent mutations, and you have other very infrequent mutations which are probably not very important in prognosis. So you have the the MAP kinase pathway with ras b you have the APC pathway, uh, <coughs> also called WNT pathway, uh, you have the TGF beta with, with uh, SMAT4, and then you have another one which is uh, the FX?
1: FXW seven notch pathway. The notch pathway,
2: right? The <laughs> notch pathway, which is rare. We know that p3ca is very commonly mutated, but probably doesn't affect prognosis. But anyway, so we have we are simplifying now, and uh, and uh, uh, most of these mutation, or uh, in fact, all, I mean, four out of five have an adverse prognosis, and one has a more favorable, confers a more favorable prognosis, like the EPC. EPC, yes. So where, where are we going now? Well, now we're <clears throat> we going towards, slowly towards, more personalized medicine with that. And when we look at a patient, uh, we look at... Uh, not only the pathology with the response to chemotherapy, uh, which is dependent on the mutation, by the way, we look at the CT response, and you have criteria of better prognosis based on the CT response. Resectable or unresectable patient, you can look at a CT. So. Uh, now you look at the mutation panel also and say, okay, you know, if this patient has three mutations, mat 4 TP53, and RAS mutation, uh, am I going to do this big operation, risky operation? On the other hand, if the patient doesn't have this mutation, you can expand, you know, the option of surgery. Then after surgery, you could use the mutation also say, well, I'm going to follow up these patients. After two years, there is this this um, um, window, uh, you know, three four years post liver surgery, intense follow up or less intense mm-hmm. follow up. Mm-hmm. So we know that patients who have RAS mutation, you should fo- still follow them yeah. more intensely than the others. So you could use this uh, post op, you could use this pre op, yeah. particularly also in patients who recur. We have uh, now a third of our resections, our re-resection. Should you re-resect? Should you give some chemo and wait? Or should you ablate and, and wait? So I think this, this helps us in making the decision. Now it's not perfect. It's not black and white. But it's certainly better than a, a, a traditional colorectal risk score based on you know very, uh, very raw clinical criteria. Right.
0: But do you think that, that most centers should be checking these NGS panels? Like, you know, where I am now, we get KRAS on everybody, and I've been trying to push more and more for these panels. But, uh, you know, the, the broader world, I don't think, is doing these. And do you think that, you know, we should be shifting towards most patients getting these panels to help make decisions in metastatic disease?
2: I think you should, you should at least have RAS be rough. And, and know whether the patient is microsatellite stable unstable. Sure. These are the three basics sure. you should always have. But now, when, the, when you have a patient that comes back, you know, after two, three, or four years, you have re resected twice, and I think it's an added information that's useful and, and will make you decide, you know, I do surgery now, I do surgery later, I'm not doing surgery. Yeah. But it's uh, it's not for all centers. Plus, plus, if you don't use it a lot, you don't. You we we have we're privileged here because with the pathology report we have a hundred and fifty gene panel, and it's a very syn- synoptic you know view, and they are circled in red, and you look and and it's it's immediate. So it it depends how it's presented also, and I mean there are a lot of. Uh, Uh, small details that enter into this decision.
0: So moving on to the next question, the next thing we wanted to ask you about is just your general approach to a patient with bilateral colorectal liver METs. So run-of-the-mill patient that comes to see you with METs on both sides, what's your approach? How are you applying one-stage, two-stage, PVE, all these different things? So this is kind of for the general listener, the uh, HPBA member out there who gets a patient with uh, with a patient with colorectal liver Mets and they have bilateral disease. How do you approach that patient? How do you make your decisions?
2: So I think patients should be evaluated, um, um, seen by a surgeon, or uh, early on, very early on, before any chemo, before any chemo. Yeah for, for you know, the benefit of the the evaluation, the, the, the evaluation because um, response is unpredictable. Mm. And unless you have a Swiss cheese or I mean, a disease that's, the liver that's riddled with metastasis, you, you, you never know. So I think it's important. Plus um, the quality of the imaging is important at the beginning um, if you start doing an MRI after two months of chemo and you haven't done uh, similar imaging pre-chemo, you don't know what you're doing. So I'm not recommending MRI in, uh, in patients with colorectal liver meds in general, but I'm recommending high-quality CT, CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. It's done quickly, um, it's not as reader dependent as, um, MRI. Uh, it's very friendly for the surgeon, but it has to be high quality. So high resolution. And, and there's, uh, unfortunately, uh, um, not always the, the high standard in, in, uh, radiology. So you do that. Then you have bilebob disease. Then you wonder what you're going to do with bilobar disease. We look at sparing, but be, and and you you think about two stage, but also you should think about uh, um, you know um, parenchymal sparing and multiple seven, eight or nine resection. Uh, I'm not into doing uh, 15 or 20. Uh, that I don't I don't do, um, and uh, and then you 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 look at how you're going to approach this two months of chemotherapy certainly the way to go if you uh, if you think about um surgery you reevaluate and then you do that ct at the end of the chemo and then you decide whether or not i do my PV. if it's a two stage you're gonna think about doing the first stage first and then the PV. now we're doing at our institution the first stage with the pve which is nice because it's, uh, and we even do the CT, so these three encounters in one in a hybrid room, PV, um, first stage, and CT. And then four weeks later, you do your second stage, so that's um, as quick as an ALPS procedure, Mm -hmm. and uh, and the dropout rate is going to be no different virtually uh, than an ALPS. Uh, Now the question is, you know, regeneration, what, what, what should you do to optimize regeneration the question today big question that's begging today is are we going to do um uh, by embolization embolization of the portal vein and of the hepatic vein hmm. together or sequentially to optimize the regeneration and <clears throat> And uh, maybe we should do that in patients with very small future liver remnant, maybe. Uh, but the question is more complex than that is, should you do a complete liver devascularization? Because most patients in whom you need to do that are patients who need an extended right. So should you do the right and the middle hepatic vein with the portal vein? So it's 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 a complicated wow. question. And then... Uh yes, the regeneration is better. The volume, what you see, is better. The KGR is going to be higher. degree of hypertrophy is going to be higher. But is this going to impact the outcome? I mean, what we measure is what we measure. So maybe we'll have a higher KGR. But is this KGR going to be uh, the, the new – what's going to be the new normal for KGR? Is going to be 2% or is it going to mm-hmm. be – Know maybe three uh, percent and, and you know less than three percent, the risk is still the same. So we kind of uh uh you know pushing the engine, yeah. but you know it's the same engine, yeah. That's great,
0: thank
1: you. So for those of us who are who are either just finished training or um hopefully finished training now, <laughs> if you'll let me if you'll let me finish training, huh. <laughs> For people like us, if you would, if you were to give some advice um, to to young surgeons looking to have a, hoping to have an illustrious career such as yours or even one close to to such, what would it be?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, my my dream was to be um, a county surgeon in Switzerland. So. I just uh, I just didn't necessarily pursue uh, um, an academic career initially. That was not in my mind. And then at the Ashna Clinic, I had the opportunity to go to these meetings, and and in fact, I was presenting a, a cardiovascular paper. And I, you know, they had a big database at the Ashna Clinic of left ventricular aneurysm. I, I received the president's award at the at the Southern thoracic and I couldn't believe it because I I read the whole presentation you know I mean verbatim so I couldn't even speak uh, the way I speak now I mean I was just I don't know what the went through the president's mind when he gave me the award but anyway um, so um I think I think you have to be inspired but by, by what you do and find Something that um, generates enthusiasm and uh, and um, and something you do with 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 ease and pleasure and enjoy and and uh, and there are a lot of things we don't enjoy. So um, so I started enjoying writing the papers and it was kind of became a second a second uh, thing I did uh, in addition of enjoying. Um, Seeing patients, operating, and making complex decisions before surgery. So that's what I liked, and uh, and I continued with that. Um, and then, then I was destined to stay, uh, um, you know, in uh, in northern Florida, in the middle of northern Florida, between the east and the west coast. You know, whether where the, where the the oldest medical school, Gainesville, you know, but the vet school was there, you know, in the middle of, uh, you know, they, they, they decided Gainesville would be there, a new town, a new university, wow. the oldest university of Florida. We'll put the students there, you know, the yeah. vet school there uh, <laughs> between east and west. So, and, and it was a great place to, to be, and I was, um, I was very happy with the residents, and I had the opportunity to come here. Um, I, I invested in, um, in, the, in the liver. I think the, the, the key would be to certainly um, not spread too thin. So you have to focus focus on maybe on GI surgery when you start. GI is fine, GI. And, of course, you may land, you know, in a job that, be wonderful, you know. Be you know, HPB. Now I know the um, specialization is uh, is there. So, but uh, but you know, stay stay broad. What what what? In fact, landed me in, in liver surgery. Um, this my men- my mentor in Switzerland called me uh, when I was at the Ashna Clinic, and he called me because he liked me. Because I had written a paper with him on appendectomy. I had reviewed for him like 800 appendectomies before I left for the Archner mm-hmm. Clinic. I was an intern in Switzerland, and he remembered me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, appendectomy, you know, yeah. <laughs> called me to be a liver surgeon. You so <laughs> your, first, your
0: first PubMed reference was on uh,
2: an epidemic of botulism. Botulism. So that was another thing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Botulism. That was another thing which was interesting. My professor of surgery in Switzerland, and my mentor was with him, uh, who called me back to Switzerland with Blumgard, Um He um, said, before I started, I, I said, I want to be a, a surgeon with the idea of being a county surgeon. And he said, well, before I take you uh, to start your residency in surgery, I want you to do either one year of search path or one year of internal medicine. And I did a year right. of both, in fact. So that helped me uh, tremendously. So it was not wasted time, but uh, it was different. It was different.
0: Great. Uh, and then our last question, if you could change, looking back on your career, if you could change one thing in your career, what do you think it would
2: be? I don't think I would change. Nothing. I would love to be, <laughs> I'd love to be in this office with you and talk today. It was wonderful.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, <sir. laughs> so I guess coming to a close here for an interview, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything you'd like to say to the members of HPBA at the end of our podcast here?
2: No, I think, <clears throat> I think, uh, Again, you know, you have to to um there and force the, you know, force the destiny or mm-hmm. force the, you know, I don't think is a good way of um, of um, uh, approaching a career, and uh, and 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 you should approach it in a in a fairly humble way, being resilient and and um do not um you know do not give up and uh certainly uh there's no small task there's no small task and uh and and you you should when you when you ask to do a small task there's a lot it can be a lot of value in it
1: well thank you again for your Uh, time Dr. devotee it's quite an honor appreciate your uh, being with us here for our master series